The scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace to, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Maneuver my notes here. It's good to be back with you this Sunday. Um, last week I was in Memphis, Tennessee um, for our General Assembly, the General Assembly of the denomination, which was our, also our 50th anniversary as a denomination. So it was a great time to worship, to pray, uh, and to do the business of our denomination, and to connect with friends from all over the country. There were over 2,300 delegates at the convention, and I was able to see a lot of friends from in the Midwest, to the South, to here, even in New York, um, we had a good group from our presbytery go as well. So I actually got to have a lunch with Pastor David in a giant steel metal-looking pyramid in Memphis. It was the strangest thing I'd ever seen. Uh, and there was a Bass Pro Shop inside of it. So um, look it up. It's actually a tourist place in the city. Uh, very strange. But Dave and I had uh, lunch there, and, and maybe the joy of my whole weekend, or that whole week, was my son Nathan came up for three days and from uh, Chattanooga, and he spent that time with me and uh, in all these different meetings, and it was just a great time to connect with him and uh, see him again. Um, but today, we're going to, I'm introducing a, basically a 10-week series on the book of Philippians. Uh, we're going to spend most of the summer in this book looking at it together um, and studying it together and thinking through it together. Uh, really, I chose this book for two reasons. Um, first, I have been contemplating more and more about joy in the Christian life, um, how to get it, how to keep it, and why I don't have it as much as I want it. And Philippians is a book that is saturated with joy. Throughout the book, throughout the entire book, Paul is just constantly referencing joy, the joy that he has, calling the church in Philippi to, Philippi to rejoice. And the second reason I thought this might be a good book for us is that the church in Philippi is a relatively healthy church. It was committed to Christ. It's committed to the gospel. Uh, and then in, in this letter, Paul does not have to really correct any theological error in this church. It's one of maybe the only letter that Paul sends out that did not correct theological error. But he does, throughout this letter, address issues of community life. Living and doing life together as the body of Christ is not always easy. I think we all know that. And yet this book can help us think deeply about how we are to live in community with one another. Paul and the church in Philippi had a long history together, and you can read about that history in Acts 16, but I'm going to give you a brief synopsis of it. Uh, ten, or ten, maybe 12 years before Paul wrote this letter, he was in Asia Minor, or what is today present, uh, today that's called Turkey. 
And he was on his second missionary journey with another group of men called Silas and Timothy, who we read about in this letter, in this introduction to this letter. And while he's on this journey, he comes to this town and he has this night vision of a man from Macedonia. And in this vision, this man is saying to Paul, come over here to Macedonia and help us, which in essence, come over here and bring the gospel to us. So the text, Acts 16 says, immediately Paul and his companions boarded a ship and sailed for present day Greece. Now, when they arrived, sorry, one second, excuse me. When they arrived to, to Philippi, they arrived to a basically a Roman colony in this Greek setting of this Greek world. Now, this colony was part of the Roman Empire, but they spoke Latin and that it was primarily a Roman colony made up of Roman citizens. So most of the people living in Philippi were Roman citizens, which meant that they had all the rights that, it, that you would get from being a citizen of the Roman Empire. And that's important because later in this letter, Paul's going to talk about where our citizenship lies. While he's in this city, he's there for a couple days, and Acts doesn't say what exactly is going on in those first few days, but eventually the Sabbath rolls around. And Paul goes out of the city gates down to a river uh, where supposedly these people would be gathered to pray. Apparently in Philippi at that time, there was not a, a synagogue in the city. Maybe there was one outside the city, but there seems to not have been a lot of Jewish people in the city. So he's down at the river, he sees these women praying, and he begins and engages in conversation with them, and particularly begins sharing the gospel with them. And a woman by the name of Lydia, who was a God-fearer, believed on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus opened her heart, and she becomes not only the first convert in Philippi, but the first convent, convert on the, in the entire continent of Europe. Now, Lydia comes to faith, and she reaches out to Paul and his companions and says, I want you to come to my house. And she opens up her house, and her house basically becomes a house church and sort of the, the, uh, the place of operations for Paul's work in the city. While Paul's in the city, and we don't know how long, he eventually encounters some hostilities. Uh, in particular, after he casts out uh, an evil spirit or a spirit from a young slave girl, the owners of that girl, who were making a lot of money from her, from her predictions, uh, become angry with Paul and his companions. And they go and complain to the authorities. Paul and Silas are arrested. They're beaten with rods. They're thrown into the inner sanctum of the, of the prison, and they're put in blocks, right? Their legs are put in these blocks. I think their hands might have been free, but they're really locked down. Now, we don't know how long he's in the city or in this prison, but we do know that Acts tells us that one night, he and Silas, at midnight of all times, are praying, and they're singing hymns. And out of nowhere, this great earthquake shakes this city, shakes this jail, all the doors open up, the stocks come off their feet, and they're free. But they don't run anywhere. They stay where they are, and the jailer of this, of this jail comes running back in. He's not in the jail with him. He comes running in, and he sees the, all the doors open, and he takes his sword, and he's about to plunge it into himself because he was worried all the prisoners had escaped, and he would be held accountable for that. So Paul sees him take his sword and realizes what he's going to do, and so Paul says to him, don't kill yourself. We're all still here. Well, amazingly, this man is shocked. Probably never had a prisoner who could have escaped 
actually stay in prison. And for whatever reason, this man opens his heart, God opens his heart, and he hears the gospel as well. And the text tells us that he and his whole, whole household, just like Lydia, are baptized and become members, fledgling members, of this church in Philippi. You know, over the intervening years, like I said, 10 years, 10 to 12 years between this letter was written and when Paul was first in Philippi, this church had really engaged with Paul the entire 10 years of his first visit there to when he writes this letter. They are engaged in his ministry and helping him preach the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, so much so that most people believe that this letter, the letter to Philippians, was written originally as a thank you note to thank this church for a gift that they had sent to Paul while he was languishing in prison in Rome. And others think, secondly, that Paul wrote this letter to, to address underlying spiritual needs around the themes of unity, joy, and humility. In verse 2, or in the first two verses of this letter, and that's what I'm going to focus on today. So just the first two verses. We had you read more, but we're going to just look at two verses today, and there's, there's a reason for that, I promise. But in, in the first two verses of this letter, Paul mentions one name three times, and that's the name of Christ Jesus or the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you notice in these first two verses, he adds something to that name, right? To the name of Christ, he attached three distinct phrases that we're going to look at. First, Paul says, we are servants of Christ. Secondly, we are saints in Christ. And lastly, grace and peace from the Lord Jesus, which is in essence is the gospel in short form. And we're going to look at those three things today. These phrases provide a key to understanding the letter and the foundation of joy that undergirds, that underlies this entire letter. It's a joy that Paul experienced and it's a joy that you and I have access to. So the first thing we see is that Paul and Timothy identify as servants of Christ Jesus. This word servant is better translated as bondservant. Bondservant is closer to the Greek word and it has more of the connotation of ownership or belonging than the idea of servant. So this is the only place in Paul's letters that the title servant is applied simultaneously to both Paul and a colleague. It's the only place in all of his letters that he does this. And he does it for a reason, which we'll get to in a minute. Most of the time, he starts a letter by introducing himself as apostle of Christ while introducing a companion as a brother or a son in the faith. But by linking this title of servant with Timothy, Paul is making it clear to the Philippians that, that the relationship between partners of the gospel are based on humility and equality, not on authority or superiority. By not taking an honorific title like apostle, which is rightfully Paul's title, he demonstrates the proper attitude to have to another person or to this church. Paul understood that this church needed to see humility at work in both his life and his ministry so he could later address the pressing issue of conflict in this community. From the very beginning of this letter, Paul and Timothy are laying a groundwork for us by showing us how to live in community with one another. From the very beginning of this letter, this is what Paul is doing. The second thing we see is that when Paul refers to himself as a bondservant or as a servant, he's declaring that his ultimate allegiance in mind, body, and soul 
belong to Jesus Christ. Now, do you recall this famous uh, poem by William Ernest Henley? It's called Invictus. Uh, you may not recall a lot of it, but everyone, I can promise you, know the end of this poem. And the, it ends with these famous words, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It's really quite stirring when you read it. Um, it's quite lovely. Um, we, we think this way many times, that we are the captains of our soul, the masters of our fate. But is that really true? Is that true? Are we really that? Are we really the masters of our fate? I think Paul, I believe Paul would answer that rather forcefully, that no, we're not the masters of our fate. We're not the captains of our soul. Rather, you and I have been bought with a price. You are not your own. We are not our own. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. John Calvin, the great 16th century former, says it like this. If we then are not our own, but the Lord's, it is clear what error we must flee and whither we must direct all the acts of our life. We are not our own. Let not our reason nor our will therefore sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us therefore not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us. We are not our own. Insofar as we can, let us forget ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely, we are God's. Let us therefore live for him and die for him. Look, to be a bondservant church, to be a bondservant of Christ means that our ambition, our plans, our identity are all placed under the plans and purpose of Christ. We belong to him. And since we belong to him, we are not to go about developing our own ideas about what is true and false or good and evil in relation to God in his word. God is the standard of truth. And his word is the determiner of ultimate truth for you and me. As servants, we are tasked with aligning our wills to the will of Christ as expressed not in our emotions, not in what someone else says, not even in what I say, but as the will of Christ, which is expressed in the word of God. Understanding that we are bondservants of Christ is the starting place for experiencing God's joy in bringing unity out of discord. The second main point is that Paul describes the believers in Philippi as holy peoples or saints in Christ Jesus. You know, I forgot to change the version I was using, and so I had to go back and redo my sermon because I was using the ESV, which uses the word saints. Well, we put it in the NIV, which uses holy peoples. So you're going to hear both words being used because both words are correct translation of the Greek word in this text. Look, Paul calls the church in Philippi holy peoples or saints because that's the normal designation that Paul gives to every church in the New Testament, whether that's Corinth, the church in Ephesus, or this church in Philippi. The believers are saints, are holy peoples in Christ. In the Bible, the Greek word for saint or holy people simply means to be set apart, to sanctify, or to make holy. So when Paul calls the church in Philippi a holy people, he is saying that they have been set apart for God, that they are holy and have a special significance given to, given to them by God because they are now his people. 
They belong to him. And he's put his identity on them, who he thinks and believes they are. The idea that we are a holy people or saints separate out into service for God should cause us to step back and ask the question, how can God call you and me holy? We know that we're not holy. We know that we are sinners. We know that we sin daily, hourly, in thoughts, words, and deeds. How can God, who is perfect, who is absolutely holy, call you and me sinners holy? Paul answers this question by attaching two small words to holy people in the text. He says, to all the holy people in Christ. It's a small word. Most of us may have read it over without giving much thought to it, but it's a word or phrase that's used over 200 times in the New Testament. It's an important word, and it's one that Paul employs often. Many people will tell you, many commentators, Bible teachers will tell you, that this word is a summation, in essence, of Paul's entire theology, to be in Christ. He uses this word or similar words over 20 times in this book alone. In Christ means that we have been united to Jesus in his life, his death, and his resurrection. That is, Jesus' obedience, his sacrifice, and his resurrected life becomes our life. In Christ, all, all who, are, who have put faith in him are united to him. And they're given a share, uh, given a share in all that Jesus has accomplished and done, including, including being declared righteous and holy. Paul says it like this elsewhere in Romans. God made Jesus, who had no sin, to become sin for, for us so that in Jesus or in him, we might become the righteousness of God, that we might be declared holy in Jesus. We are a holy people. We are saints, not because of anything in us, but because we are in Jesus. We are holy because he is holy. That holiness, our sainthood in Christ, allows us to stand before and come to the throne room of God, of a holy God, and delight in him instead of cringing back in fear from him. We are the saints of the living God. Right there sits Saint Larry, and right over there is Saint Tony. We are the saints in Christ, in Astoria, at Astoria Community Church. We are loved and we are set apart for service to our great God. One last point on being called God's holy people. Did you notice how Paul addressed all the holy people or all the saints, not just the leadership, the elders and deacons? He will say repeatedly throughout this letter, 10 times in fact, he will use the inclusive all of you, all of you. You saw it in verse 2, but also in verse 4 and 7, where he says, I have all of you in my heart. I pray for all of you. Paul is being quite intentional here by addressing this to all the saints and not just to some. He is making sure that everyone in this church, everyone in the church at Philippi, knows that they are included in his concerns. He's not just concerned for the leadership, nor even the women at odds with one another in chapter 4. He wants the church to know that he is writing not only to, to those who have brought him joy, but also to those whose actions have brought division. Here's the thing. 
Whenever a church is facing disunity, as the Philippian church was, we, we can understand this because we, when we have the same kind of developments that might go on within this community or other communities, we tend to replace all with some. You know what I mean, right? We find it easier to serve with some of the saints, give thanks for some of the saints, and pray for some of the saints. Those saints who rub us the wrong way, we tend to avoid or to give them space, meaning we really don't engage with them on any real level at all. It's easy not to associate or put walls up or create division between one another for a host of reasons, and you can fill in whatever those reasons are. And I assume that we've all either experienced that ourselves because we've, been, we've had that done to us or we've done that to others. But look what Paul is saying here. Paul would insist that we embrace one another with the same love we have received from Christ. This kind of unity is not easy. It's hard work and it requires a love and commitment to one another even when there are differences. We must be willing as the saints in Christ to work through issues, through hurt feelings and sinful attitudes and actions so that the name of Christ will continue to be honored and proclaimed throughout or through our own humility and through our own love in this community around, with one another and in the greater Astoria area. My last point is that the foundation of joy is the gospel. Now, Paul ended his standard greeting with a blessing that wraps up the gospel in three words. He says, grace and peace from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins with grace and then peace. This is purposeful and it's standard in all of his letters. The order of these words in the gospel proclamation is vitally important. There must first be grace before there can be peace with God. One definition, definition of grace is this. Grace is the favor and love of God for us through his son, Jesus Christ, that is not earned, but received through faith. One Bible commentator says that grace is the source and spring in the heart of God from which salvation flows. For God's grace is the only way for us to be reconciled to him. And look, I know we, we love to speak of grace and we talk about being saved by grace and living by grace, which those are all true things. But let's be honest with one another. Grace butts up against our sense of moral goodness. Grace reminds us that we're not good enough, that we need something outside of ourselves to make us right with God. If you're sitting here today and you think that you're, that you're right with God because you do good things, because, hey, you come to church on Sundays, or you're right with God because you tithe, or you're kind to your mother, or you obey your parents, if you think that that's what makes you right with God, then you really haven't grasped God's grace. The only, re the only way to receive God's unmerited favor, to receive his grace, is to see ourselves as undeserving sinners and call out to him in the name of Jesus. If you don't know his grace, you can't know God and you won't have peace. Because true peace comes from experiencing God's grace. The peace Paul had in mind here probably exp expresses the tr traditional Jewish greeting of shalom. 
Now, Shalom, according to Avon Pintinga, who's a philosopher, was a philosopher, is this webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. It means a universal flourishing and wholeness, and it incorporates in its meaning the way things are meant to be when the problem of sin is removed. So for Paul, grace and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ encapsulates the gospel message. David Strain, who's the pastor at First Pres in Jackson, Mississippi, says it this way, we need grace for spiritual death and inability before God. And we need peace for our enmity and our hostility toward God. Grace and peace provide a comprehensive response to the bankruptcy and sin of the human heart. Lastly, I would be remiss if you came away thinking that Paul is pointing you to grace and peace. He is not. He is pointing us to Christ. He's pointing us to the gospel from which grace and peace flow. The Christian gospel is the good news that by faith in Jesus, God gives himself his love, his peace, his joy. And without that grace and peace of God wrapped up in Jesus, there is no peace. There is no foundation for joy because our joy flows out of and from the gospel. That is, our joy flows out of and from Jesus. So have you experienced Jesus in the grace and peace he offers? Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you that you are a great God. We thank you for the identity that you've given us as both servants and saints and for the gospel that restores us to right relationship with you. We thank you that in Christ, that all that he has accomplished, all that he has done becomes ours through faith. And Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts to hear these truths of Paul, to grow us as a community, both in love and service, but also in unity and faithfulness to one another, in kindness and in grace toward each other, that your name would be honored and proclaimed in and through our love and humility towards one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.